Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 310, Political Theater. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Lee, Philip, and Perrin for signing up already. Human beings can't really be summed up in a nickname. Usually, we're much more complicated than a word or two. And sometimes, a nickname just doesn't reflect reality. If you take Edward the Elder as an example, the name probably conjures up the image of Gandalf. But Edward was only in his early 50s when he died. And you might have noticed that quite a few of these 10th century kings had nicknames that just didn't seem to fit. King Charles the Bald wasn't actually bald. He was actually famously hairy. The nickname was a joke. And as for Edward the Elder, well, that name took nearly 300 years to form, likely because the Normans wanted Edward Longshanks to be Edward I. And that made a previous Anglo-Saxon King Edward a little awkward. So he became Edward the Elder, which made him sound a lot less like a real king and almost like a legendary king. And that right there is the other point of a nickname. It can convey a message that you want to send. It's a type of branding. And it's possible that branding is why Edgar was called the Peaceable. You see, nicknames were a handy way for figures or institutions to present a certain image. Sometimes they might want to tie themselves to some sort of power, or maybe they're looking to downplay an inconvenient association. Other times there's a more specific personal or political goal, which is either being reinforced by themselves or by someone else. And these branding efforts, these nicknames, play into that. In today's world, we know to be on the lookout for manipulative branding. Everything from Mad Men to George Orwell's 1984 warns us about the dangers of advertising and propaganda campaigns. But we sometimes forget to be on our guard when it comes to history. We take things like nicknames at face value, like they're just neutral descriptions. But that's not always the case. And Edgar appears to have undergone at least one, if not many, medieval branding campaigns. I mean, look at who we're talking about here. According to Malmesbury, Edgar had a temper, he was diminutive, he had three consorts, just like his grandfather did, King Edward. He stole a nun, he was accused of murdering a close friend and elderman, and he even threatened to kill the King of Scotland. The list goes on and on, and if I had started this series with the title Edgar the Small, or Edgar the Perv, or Edgar the Bloody, you likely would have come into this story with some assumptions about who Edgar was. But instead, Edgar was granted the same nickname that the royal accounts gave him. Edgar the Peaceable. Implying that the most important thing about Edgar's reign was the fact that he didn't go to war. But there's a lot more to Edgar than just that. And there's actually something else that was much more important that was happening in England. The country was finally beginning to attain the political unity that the House of Wessex had been striving for for generations. The pieces were finally starting to fall into place. Creating the Danelaw seemed to be the compromise that brought stability to the northern regions. And this meant that for the first time in the history of England, the kingdoms of the Heptarchy were starting to gel. And now it was just a matter of time before the people of the Danish regions would start to see themselves as English rather than, say, Northumbrian, 
or East Anglian. On top of this, Bishop Athelwald's educational program was also working. Old English was becoming standardized. And some historians believe that was during this time that measuring systems were also becoming standardized throughout the kingdom. And perhaps most importantly, the law was also getting standardized. While King Edgar had established that the Dane law would be respected and that the region would be allowed to retain its own laws and customs, Edgar also began to establish common laws, laws that bound all the regions of England. And as for the non-Danish regions of England, there would be a universal law code, Edgar's Code. And this law code was so influential that it will actually survive the future conquest of a foreign king, Canute. Now, of course, Edgar was clearly standing on the shoulders of his predecessors. His reforms just would not have been possible without the infrastructure of his great-grandfather, or the conquests of his grandfather, or the international diplomacy of his uncle. But at the same time, it's undeniable that Edgar had achieved a degree of stability that had not been seen in England since the days of Rome. And he had achieved this by combining political unity with the establishment of a common culture. And given this feat, Edgar could have just as easily been known as Edgar the Uniter. Under his reign, the lines that had divided the Anglo-Saxons for so long were being deliberately erased. And much of this work was actually being done through the ecclesiastical arm of Edgar's administration. Through things like Athelwald's Regularis Concordia, which was set down at the Synod of Winchester in 970. And these documents full of rules weren't just an attempt to get all of the English church on the same page. The Benedictine reformers and Edgar had an even greater ambition for religion in England. They wanted to unify the religious views of even the English lay people. For example, within Athelwald's Regularis, you'll find the first example of an English theatrical ritual. A theatrical ritual is sort of like a little play, or more likely a musical. Historically, the church had been running into a problem when it came to reaching out to the layfolk. They certainly wished to tend to their flock of believers, but traditionally, masses were being held in Latin. And not a lot of people actually spoke in Latin. Predictably, that made it difficult for the clergy to emphasize the importance of certain events and celebrations. I mean, all that Latin does sound fancy, and the robes certainly give a sense of gravitas. But as for what is actually being said... Well, most people were lost, were bored, probably both. But that didn't mean they were going to stop using Latin. Don't be crazy. Instead, they introduced the theatrical ritual, a religious play. And the way it worked is a scene would be acted out and songs would be sung. And then the people would get a sense of what was going on. And the first theatrical ritual appears in the Regularis. And it was to be performed on the eve of Easter. What we're told is that as songs were being sung, three women were to approach Christ's grave, and someone dressed as an angel would be watching over that grave. Then a monk dressed in white and holding a palm branch would approach while singing his song, and he would take the angel's seat. Then three other monks would arrive, hooded in robes and swinging censers, and they would approach the grave as if searching for something. And... Scene. Yeah, I know, it's not exactly Hamilton, but give him a break. 
They were still figuring this stuff out for the first time. And truth be told, these religious performance art installations in the middle of a mass would have been vastly more entertaining than hours of dudes mumbling in Latin. And the idea here was clear. Theatrics, acting out actual scenes from the holy texts and sermons, would grab the public's attention. They could finally follow the narrative and get a sense of why this mass was important. Kind of. I mean, even if you didn't know what Easter was about, after this mass, you'd have the sense that someone important had died and that the monks were serving in the place of angels. And then maybe they were asking an arborist for directions at the end? I don't know. Like I said, it's not perfect. It's a bit like signing up for veterinary school and finding yourself at a showing of cats. But it still was an improvement. Moreover, these shared experiences and understandings would be a huge tool in the efforts to create a united people. For example, I bet most people now were unified in their desire to get better playwrights. And as a result, England was becoming united. And it was the church who was now doing the heavy lifting. And in 971, this becomes especially apparent. In this year, Archbishop Oscatel of Jorvik died. And in his place, a new archbishop was appointed. But this new archbishop took one look at the job and immediately resigned. And so the See of Jorvik remained open. And that was a big opportunity. When it comes to religious influence in England, the See of Jorvik was second only to the See of Canterbury. Furthermore, Jorvik was at the heart of the Dane law. And while Archbishop Oscatel had been generally supportive of King Edgar and his plans for England, he still wasn't part of the king's inner circle of reformers. And that meant that while the powerful See of Jorvik had been nominally aligned with the king and the Benedictines, it still largely functioned as its own thing. But now there was a chance to change all that. And so the king and the Benedictine reformers moved quickly. Now, the strongest and most vocal of the reformers, unsurprisingly, was Bishop Athelwald. This was a guy who was literally described as being, quote, terrible as a lion, end quote, when dealing with any who stood in the way of his efforts at reform. And that was a quality that made him very effective in the South. But Jorvik wasn't in the South. And they had their own culture. And it appears that the powers that be determined that the Danes of the North required a lighter touch. Someone more like Archbishop Dunstan. Someone who didn't scream fire and fury and potentially force reforms at the point of a sword. Someone who preferred to utilize educational and bureaucratic systems to orchestrate a reform. Someone like Bishop Oswald. So, Oswald was appointed to his new see at Jorvik. And that meant that he now held the see of Jorvik in the north in addition to the Sea of Worcester in the south. And you might think that Jorvik would object to that, but the truth is that Worcester was a wealthy and relatively stable bishopric. So that merger might have actually been a rather attractive prospect. And it must have been, because those two seas would remain combined despite the vast geographical distances for the next 50 years. And with this appointment... Oswald became an incredibly powerful man. But that being said, just because Athelwald got spurned, it doesn't mean that he was left twiddling his thumbs. In 972, he added another new religious house to his power base. The monastery at Thorny was restored, and it was done so under his guidance and staffed by people he selected. There was no stopping this movement now. But that being said, 
Bishop Oswald in the north still did have something he had to take care of. True, he'd been appointed to the see, but he wasn't really official yet. He still needed to journey to Rome so he could acquire his pallium from Pope John VIII. And that was actually good timing, because right at the same time, King Edgar was reaching out to Emperor Otto I of the Holy Roman Empire. Do you remember Otto? He was the son of Henry the Fowler, and was the guy who found himself elbow deep in that mess between Louis and Hugh. Well, since then, Otto had been doing pretty well for himself, having acquired the title of emperor about eight years earlier. And now that England was starting to stabilize, it looks like Edgar was looking to reconnect with the continent. So he sent Abbot Asquig to go and speak with Otto. And it's possible that Oswald also went with him. After all, the Archbishop of Jorvik would add a lot of gravitas. England was stepping back onto the world stage, or at least dipping its first toe in. But underlying this momentous return was also an awkward subtext. You see, Otto was an emperor. He was crowned by Pope John VII, and that was three popes ago. Popes don't tend to live too long. And meanwhile, King Edgar hadn't been crowned by Pope John VII or by any other popes. In fact, he hadn't had a coronation at all. And maybe it was time to change that. But the timing of this event is a little odd. I mean, why wait so long? Well, Malmesbury claims that Edgar's coronation had been delayed as a punishment for stealing that nun for sexual purposes. And the fact that the story of Wolfrith is repeated elsewhere does make that explanation seem rather credible. But it's also worth noting that Edgar didn't get crowned until he was specifically 30 years old. And 30 happens to be a very important age in the eyes of the church. 30 is when someone's old enough to be ordained as a priest. And if this was another king, like Offa, I'd probably assume that the age thing was a coincidence. But this was Edgar. He hadn't been raised by some elderman or in court like his predecessors. He had grown up being tutored directly by Bishop Athelwald. And actually, it's entirely possible that Edgar had been intended for the priesthood right from the start, as he was the second child of Edmund, and Edwig, his older brother, was the heir apparent. Furthermore, even when he was raised to the throne, Edgar made religious reform the cornerstone of his reign. His inner circle was full of Benedictine reformers. So with this context, waiting until the age of priesthood to have his coronation doesn't look like a coincidence at all. And Archbishop Dunstan, Archbishop Oswald, and Bishop Athelwald seem like exactly the kind of churchmen who would have wanted to arrange that sort of symbolic union between crown and God. And if you're still skeptical, remember that Dunstan had spent time in Francia, and there, the symbolic link between coronation and ordination was already established. But that being said, deciding to delay Edgar's coronation until he was 30 for religious or political reasons doesn't mean that there wasn't a nun napping. And if you ask me, I think Dunstan probably handed down his punishment specifically with an eye of doing the coronation when Edgar was 30. I mean, he could have picked six years, eight years, but he chose just long enough to ensure that Edgar would be 30. And it was Dunstan who was in charge of arranging and performing the coronation ceremony. And that's a big deal. While this makes him sound a bit like a party planner, taking charge of a coronation of a king was serious power. Because it wasn't just a crowning. 
It was a full ceremony that involved oaths and anointing. And all of these actions symbolically bound the king to his people and the people to their king. For something like that, there's not a Pinterest board in existence that was going to help the archbishop get it right. There are about a bajillion steps that would need to be taken, and Dunstan would have to write them all. Because up till this point, there wasn't an official method for coronation. Sure, there had been coronations at Kingston-upon-Thames, actually quite a lot of them, but there wasn't a codified system for how the ritual should be carried out. And that meant that this was one hell of an opportunity. This lack of codification meant that Dunstan had a chance to mold the ceremony into something new, something that served the new order that they were creating in England. Specifically, Dunstan wanted to inextricably link the crown with God himself. And having Edgar be the same age as a priest was just the first flourish. Dunstan also carefully selected the specific day for the coronation with an eye on the religious implications, because he chose to do the coronation on Pentecost. And if you haven't been to Sunday school in a bit, or ever, you're probably a bit lost about now. So let's back up a bit, like way back. In the biblical story of Pentecost, we're told about an event that happens to Christ's apostles shortly after his crucifixion. The apostles, understandably, were recovering from a really rough week and a half. In that time, their Messiah had been crucified, and then he'd been killed, which was obviously pretty surprising since he was the Messiah. And then three days later, he was resurrected, which was vindicating. But then rather than going totally sick house on the people who nailed him to a couple planks of wood, which was kind of expected due to the messianic prophecies, instead, the newly revived Jesus decided to just call it a day and check into heaven. And you have to admit, without an explanation, that's a confusing series of events for a believer. So seven weeks after the resurrection, 120 followers of Christ got together, probably to do a bit of emotional processing and group therapy with the apostles. And then, just as they were likely getting into how this had been affecting their sense of purpose and self-worth, the apostles were overtaken by a mighty rushing wind. And before anyone had a chance to say, hey, Peter, don't you think it's a little windy in here? The 12 apostles were gifted tongues of fire, and they found that they could suddenly speak in many languages. And they realized that this rushing wind was the Holy Spirit, and that they, the 11 remaining original apostles, along with a new guy, Matthias, were chosen to evangelize the message of Christ. And this forming of the Almighty's X-Men is still celebrated as Pentecost, or as it's called in the UK, Whitsunday. And guess when Dunstan wanted Edgar's coronation to take place? Whitsunday. By crowning Edgar on Whitsunday, the ceremony, and hopefully Edgar, would be imbued with that Pentecostal glow. The symbolism of the day would be clear to all who were aware of the story. Holding the coronation on that day said that Edgar wasn't just a king. He was now part of Christ's hand-picked representatives. But as strong as that messaging is, none of it would matter if the ceremony was poorly carried out. Archbishop Dunstan would need to strike exactly the right tone. And apparently, that wasn't easy. We know that Dunstan came up with at least two drafts as he was organizing this ceremony. I don't know what went wrong with the first attempts. But finally, Dunstan found a form that he was happy with. And so on Whit Sunday of 973, the full English coronation was performed for the first time. 
It was this very coronation that still influences the style of English coronations to this day. The coronations of James II, Henry VII, even Elizabeth II, all of them had elements that started right here with Dunstan and Edgar. And for once, our luck holds out, and we actually have an eyewitness account of this first version of the ceremony, and it was written down by a man named Bert Firth. In the old church of Bath, there was this great throng of clergymen, and King Edgar was led into the church by two bishops who were holding his hands. It's unrecorded who these bishops were, but my guess is it was likely that it was Athelwald and Oswald themselves. The king, for his part, was clad in robes and was already wearing his crown as he entered. Then as he approached the end of the church, he removed the crown and prostrated himself before the altar, all while Bishop Dunstan sang the hymn of praise, the Te Deum. Once the hymn was complete, the bishops raised the king off the ground, where he took the coronation oath. And this oath was less of a speech made by the king and more like a pop quiz. The archbishop peppered the king with questions, and the king answered, Do you promise to ensure true peace will be observed throughout the kingdom? Do you promise that mercy will temper all judgments? Do you promise that robbers will be forbidden? The questions kept coming, and in the end, Edgar aced it. He passed the oath. And afterwards, Dunstan prayed over the king and anointed him with holy oil. Then he placed a ring on the king's finger, gave him a sword, placed the crown back upon his head, and blessed him. Once this was complete, the king sat on his throne, accompanied by Archbishop Dunstan and Archbishop Oswald. And this ceremony was a significant break from the previous West Saxon and English coronations. Before Edgar, there have been oaths and religious figures. For example, we see those elements in the coronation of Edgar's father, King Edmund. But none of the previous coronations were this overtly religious. Every aspect of Edgar's coronation was deliberately tying the coronation to the church. Every aspect. And you might be wondering why Edgar would bestow so much symbolic power upon the church. Well, Given his attention to Benedictine reform, it's quite likely that he was ideologically aligned with the church, regardless of any questionable extracurricular activities he might have been engaging in whenever the bishops weren't watching. But more than that, there was also a political benefit to this union. You see, by tying the crown to the newly reformed church, the monarchy would now have a certain degree of dignity that would exist independent of any particular actions or, you know, failings of the current monarch. And that's something that Dunstan and Edgar were likely quite interested in establishing given the current king's behavior. So by establishing the king was God's representative on earth, it would bolster Edgar's chances of unifying and stabilizing his notoriously unstable kingdom. But the ceremony wasn't actually done yet. We're also told that Ilfthrith, Edgar's wife and stone-cold hottie, was also anointed and proclaimed queen during this same ceremony. Or at least, we think she was. Those of you following me on Twitter got to watch my frustration at trying to actually acquire a translation of Bert Firth's Vita Sancti Oswaldi, the document where this account is actually found. And eventually, I did find a copy. And here's why I go through the trouble of getting my hands on primary sources. Bert Firth's account is not as clear as we would like. 
he does talk about how he had a copy of the Second Ordo, meaning Elfthreth's coronation. But when he's talking about Edgar's coronation, he doesn't say, and then there was the Second Ordo. Instead, he talks about how Elfthreth married the king. And that's pretty confusing, because we know that they were actually married many years earlier. So why is she remarrying him at the coronation? And why does Burtfirth affirmatively state that he does have the Second Ordo? Well, the assumption among many historians is that Burtfirth was being flowery with his language, and that the marriage he was talking about was actually the second coronation of the queen. And that's entirely plausible given the tone and context. I can see the logic behind it. And honestly, I think the historians who've written about this are correct. But that isn't what Burtfirth specifically said. And I try to be as transparent with you as I can. So, you should know that the oft-repeated tale of how the queen was crowned during the same ceremony as Edgar is just a theory based upon a confusingly written entry in the life of St. Oswald. It's a theory I agree with, but for the students listening, this is why it's important to dig into sources and verify things. Because that's where you find the nuance. But, regardless of whether it happened at Edgar's coronation, which is what historians like Janet Nelson and Eric John believe, or whether it happened at a later date, Burtfirth does make it clear that Aelthrith did have a second ordo. She had a coronation. And that was something that must have gone off like a bomb in the English halls of power. This is likely the first time that a queen had been crowned in the Kingdom of England. For generations, the House of Wessex had refused to even allow the king's consorts to hold a title. Instead, she would just be the king's wife. And this was a practice that was blamed upon an apocryphal and misogynistic story that involved Charlemagne and Edbur. And documents that survive suggest that this West Saxon tradition of denying the position of queen had been maintained since at least the days of King Alfred's grandfather, King Egbert. But here, that all changed. Now there would be a queen of England. And she wouldn't just hold the title— she would undergo a coronation of her own. Edgar and Dunstan were remolding the very fabric of the English monarchy. And that's hard work. So after the oily, chanty fuss was done, we're told that they feasted. And it must have been a hell of a party. Because religious reforms aside, these were still the Anglo-Saxons. And the Anglo-Saxons loved to party. And party, they did. Now, as for the heir apparent, the 11-year-old Prince Edward, it's not mentioned where he was during these proceedings or the subsequent feasting. But if I had to guess, I'd say he was probably somewhere in the shadows, maybe picking on his seven-year-old brother, Prince Athelred, or maybe kicking a cat. Something wasn't right about that boy. And then, on that same year, shortly after the coronation, King Edgar sailed to Chester le Street in Durham. And he was riding pretty high. His kingdom was stable, he was anointed by God, and now that the kingdom had enjoyed literally decades of peace, he also had some pretty significant reserves to pull from. His people weren't war-weary any longer. Their resources were no longer strained. And England was starting to look a little more like it had been during the glory days of Athelstan. And we're told that once he arrived at Durham, King Edgar met with six kings. Florence of Worcester claims that these kings were Kenneth II of Scotland, King Malcolm of Cumbria, and five princes who appear to have been the kings of Wales, Strathclyde, and the islands. 
The Chronicle of Melrose somewhat confirms that list, telling us that King Kenneth II was indeed there, along with King Malcolm II of Strathclyde, Maccus, the king of very many islands, which probably meant King Magnus Haraldson of Man and the Isles, and then other Welsh and Norse kings. But whoever was actually there, what the sources agree on is that these kings offered King Edgar their fealty and promised to come to Edgar's aid by land and sea, should he call upon them. King Edgar was beginning to wield serious power on the island. Power that was beginning to extend beyond his own formal borders. And Florence of Worcester claims that the kings then rode King Edgar along the Dee, while Edgar held the rudder. And that scene, which doesn't appear in the other records, would have been a clear bit of political theater, symbolizing the role that King Edgar and his supporters saw for him on the island. He decided where Britain would go, and then the other kings got him there. But I'm not entirely sure that that actually happened. It feels like it would be laying it on a bit thick, and it's suspect that no one else mentions it. Furthermore, this wasn't a capitulation. It was clearly a negotiation. Exchanges were being offered. And they were exchanges that Edgar was likely quite happy to make, because it's obvious from the record that he was seeking to establish peace on the island and a form of overlordship similar to what Athelstan and Edmund had brokered in decades past. But it wasn't all wine and roses. In particular, there was a question over whether the upper part of Northumbria should be part of Scotland. And note, by the way, that there wasn't a question over whether the lowland Scots should be part of England, just whether or not the upper part of Northumbria should be in King Kenneth's territory. That should give you a sense of how Edgar might have held power, but he wasn't all powerful. And King Kenneth II was still a mighty king in his own right. And right now, he was wondering whether the northern portion of Northumbria should be his. And King Edgar had some pretty firm ideas on that front. And likely to emphasize his position, we're told by Roger of Wendover that Edgar gave King Kenneth II some estates in England, which he could use to reside in whenever he came to the English court. And as for what Edgar got in exchange? Well, King Kenneth II of Scotland made a formal cessation of all the lands between the Tweed and the Forth. And this appears to have been the first time that the Tweed was used as a formal boundary between Scotland and England. And it wouldn't be the last. Things were being set in motion in 973, and there were things that would reverberate for over a thousand years. But for Edgar, this was probably just another step along the path towards his family's ultimate goal of unification. And unlike many of his predecessors, Edgar was managing to accomplish it without going to war. And in that light, Edgar the Peaceable does make a rather fitting nickname. And with his diplomatic victory, the king's work in Durham was over, and he headed back south. And despite the flurry of activity in 973, it looks like things in England were pretty uneventful in the following year, because the chronicle goes dark. Only to pick up once again with an entry for July 8th of 975. Because on that year, King Edgar of England died. He would have been 31 or 32 years old. And the scribes don't tell us how he died. But it's certainly getting weird that monarchs of the House of Wessex keep dying so young. And it's even weirder that hardly anyone says why that's happening. 
Because if you went by the tone of the record, you'd get the impression that it's just totally normal for a monarch to drop dead at an early age when there's no war, no instability, and not even any mention of illness. I don't know what happened there, but I'm getting the feeling that the House of Wessex had something pretty weird going on, either genetically or culturally. But the king is dead. Long live the king. And as for who that king would be, well, that's a good question. Really comes down to whether or not someone's ready. But I should let you know that this issue of branding isn't going to go away anytime soon. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on pretty much every area of social media, and you can find links to all our communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>